We're going to be in Daniel chapter 9. Now, I know that Daniel chapter 9 is probably one of the most controversial chapters in all of the Scripture, and so if you're wanting me to to figure that out for you, you're in... um, in a good position that the Lord's going to grant you the, the opportunity to uh, practice self-control tonight, because we're not going to go there. We're going to look at the prayer of Daniel, and we're going to look at the context of that, of that prayer. And uh, just up front, I, I, I have really been blessed by Sinclair Ferguson's commentary on the book of Daniel. It's in the Communicator's um, Bible commentary series, which is really just a commentary for everyone. It's not a technical commentary. And uh, if you were looking for a good commentary on the book of Daniel, well, you probably couldn't find it any better than Sinclair Ferguson. But he says this on chapter 9, and I'm going to quote him for us to just kind of lay the groundwork of how we think about prayer, because we've been studying prayer. We we started off by looking at um, the call for having a corporate prayer meeting, And then last week we looked at the catechism, what is prayer, and we we went through each line of that. Well, tonight we're going to look at a prayer from God's Word. But Sinclair says this, quote, When an individual is in secret on his knees before God, that he is and no more. Since this is so, it is in this chapter that we learn who Daniel really was and discover the secret of his usefulness in God's kingdom, end quote. That's a packed full there. But that beginning of that, what an individual is in secret on his knees before God, that he is and no more. Something for us to ponder in that. Now, if we look at Daniel chapter 9, the first four verses give us the historical context on which we find this prayer. Specifically, Verse 1 gives us the the overall historical context in the timeline of Daniel's life and in the timeline of Israel's history. Verse 1 reads, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. This is a time of political upheaval, instability, and massive change that has taken place. Prior to this, Belshazzar was the king. That was the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Well, he was wiped out by Darius, and Darius now comes as a Mede, no longer a Chaldean, is taken over the kingdom of the Babylonians. The Babylonians had had uh, attacked Jerusalem and carted off Jerusalem and brought back there are uh, many dis, uh, ascend, um, residents of Jerusalem and of Judah, and they're now residing in exile. And this is about 66 years, roughly or so, into their time of exile when this happens. And so there's a couple of things about this to set the historical context. It's a time of political upheaval, instability, and when there's a regime change, that, that, that makes a big difference. We experience that in such a minute way in our own country. Every four years, we have a presidential election, and if a new president comes in, it's a massive change for us. Now, imagine if we had a dictator. 
that had absolute control and rule over us, it would be a it would be a massive change to have a new one. So, what does Daniel think of that? Well, first of all, Daniel knows something about God. There's no human leader that is in power that was not put there by God. In fact, Daniel said this to Nebuchadnezzar. He says in chapter 2, verse 21, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. So Daniel has already acknowledged his theology is a theology of God's absolute sovereignty. He knew that Darius being king was an act of God. He knew that Belshazzar being removed and being executed was an act of God. So he trusts in the absolute sovereignty of God. Now this is important in how we think of prayer. How many of you believe in the absolute sovereignty of God? I, I would say, I would say, I hope we all do. We believe that God is absolutely sovereign over all things. Nothing takes place out of his decree. And that's what we mean when we talk about absolute sovereignty. Now, this is important to consider because with a solid faith in the sovereignty of God, it doesn't drive us to inaction, but rather it drives us to our knees to pray to this sovereign God that has decreed and determined everything that will take place. And Daniel certainly does that. Notice in verse 2, it says, in the first year of his reign, so this is fresh. This is a fresh change. He says, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And we've got to pause here for a second. Is in this time, Daniel goes to the word of God to consult it. Now think about who Daniel is. Daniel's the guy that they ask, what does this dream mean? And Daniel interprets it. Daniel has need of what? God's word. He goes to the prophet Jeremiah. This is a guy that could interpret dreams. This is a guy that they sought out when none of the other ones could, could, could interpret the dream. They, they seek out Daniel. But Daniel himself is submissive to the word of God, consults the word of God. He is in need of God's special revelation. And so he puts himself before the word of God. We've already seen how he recognizes God's sovereignty. But notice this. He gives us this little clue where he says this. These things must pass. And then he gives a year. He's quoting from Jeremiah 25, 11. 70 years. That's absolutely phenomenal because it's been 66 years. Daniel could be thinking, God is a God of his word. Whatever he has decreed will happen. Darius is put in place by him. I can wait this out for God to fulfill his promises because God is faithful. And Daniel believes that. But he doesn't just sit on his hands and do nothing. That's what's so important for us to see. In his trust of God's word, 
which promises in 70 years, they, I got four years left and then we're out of here. He doesn't just sit back and relax. But actually, his trust in God's sovereignty is seen in what he does. And so he, it leads him to prayer. You think about how we approach prayer. We're not fatalist when we pray. We don't think, well, God just knows what's going to happen, so I really don't need to pray for it, because God already knows. Daniel, who, again, trusts in God's sovereignty, does not approach life like that. He says God knows, and because God knows, I'm going to go to the Lord in prayer. He says, God, please hear my prayers. And it's amazing, and thank God, he records the prayer for us. It's very similar to Nehemiah 9. Let me ask you this. Do you think these prayers were written to spur others on to prayer? Whether it's Daniel 9 or Nehemiah? I think so. I think that when we read these prayers, I think that that God has it recorded for us and kept for us to actually encourage us to pray, to actually think about our theology and how our theology actually transcends into how we live our life and informs how we live our life. And so as we read these prayers, or you read any prayer, or you read 150 Psalms, they're there to instruct us and to spur us to praise, to worship, to prayer. Now notice verses 3 through 4. I call this section the reverence section, but think about how it it prepares him, or how he prepares for prayer. And then wrestle with how sometimes maybe we approach prayer. In verse 3, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. How would you describe what Daniel is doing here? How would you describe it? What do you see? Him as a priest. Okay. How so? Well, the priest speaks from the people to God. Okay. Okay, yeah, so he's on behalf of the people. Okay. Good. Now, how do you see that how he's preparing himself for this? He's humbling himself. Yeah. What else do you see here? Repentance? Yeah. Repentance. Sign of mourning. Absolutely. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, he's, he's preparing himself for going into prayer. Yeah. So, we see he's humbling himself. He's, he's taking it seriously. Uh, he, there's this mourning aspect. There's repentance to it. What about sacrifice? 
Where do you see sacrifice in there? He's fasting. He's fasting, He's fasting as he prepares. So this, we haven't even got to the prayer yet. <clears throat> We're just looking at how Daniel prepared himself for prayer. I, I think it was in Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Preacher and Pre- Preaching and Preachers, where he talks about praying before preparing a sermon. And he said something that I could just relate to. He said, you know, sometimes you, you need to read some scripture before you can even pray because it gets your mind flowing. And I, and I can relate to that. There's, there's a cer- certain helpfulness in prayer that, that scripture can actually be a means of getting our mind turning uh, to direct our thoughts, direct our hearts to the Lord in prayer. So there's a lot of things that we can do. We can, we can fast. In fact, we see that that is something that, um, that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7, I believe. Um, we can fast before prayer. There's a lot of things that we can do to prepare ourselves. Yeah. Is there a difference that the believers now have the Holy Spirit in us? Not that he didn't have the Spirit at that time, but that we have been dwelling in us to, to pray and perhaps even change our prayers before they get to God. Is there a difference there? Yeah, I, I, I think so. Um, I think that uh, we, um, the Spirit, it's a work of the Spirit. I think like in, in Zechariah, where you see that God pours out His Spirit of grace upon a people, and, and it results in prayer. And so I think that very active prayer is a work of the Spirit in our lives that we desire that. Um, as you read Daniel, what was it, that, that he prayed three times daily at set times. Uh, well, it was, I believe it was three times, right? This was very habitual for him. I think it can be that way for us too, but I definitely think that, that when we have the Spirit at work in our lives, it drives us to prayer. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, and, and likely, I, I, I agree, I think that that's a good insight. It, it, it also likely is he's praying towards Jerusalem. Where he, where, and that's going to be the content of his prayer is Jerusalem. And so it's almost as if he's looking towards Jerusalem, where the direction of Jerusalem. And as, as he's looking that way, he begins his prayer. Let's look at the prayer. It begins in verse 4, about the middle of verse 4. And I just divided this text like this. Adoration, confession, adoration, confession, adoration, confession, request. And that's, that's really how we're going to unfold this prayer if, we, if we're able to get through it. But in verse 4 it says this, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So what would you call that? Adoration. Yeah, Yahweh Elohim, the mighty God, is how he begins this. 
He says that God is great. That is that God is extraordinary. God exceeds all others. That He is awesome. That is, He is to be fear. Now it says this, it says, who keeps covenant and steadfast love. That is that that word hesed that's sometimes translated as mercy. So what attribute would you call who keeps covenant who is steadfast in his love? What attribute would you identify? If you had to put a, a, an attribute of God on that, what would you call it? Faithfulness. Now think about it. <clears throat> Sometimes when you're in prayer, you, you might say an attribute of God, and then, then you move on. What Daniel, I think, teaches us is, is actually meditating upon that attribute. Oh, Lord God, you are faithful. You show steadfast love. Lord, you are a covenant-keeping God. And so just like in, as, as he, we see in his prayer, it's almost as if he's meditating on these attributes of God and saying the same thing in different ways. I think that that can be a, a good exercise for us because when we enter into that exercise, we're not thinking about ourselves, but we're actually thinking to the God that we're praying to and how awesome he truly He truly is. He also recognizes that God has a special relationship with his people. That God has a people. That he is marked out. And that God is faithful to them. Which makes the confession so revealing. Verses 5-6 through read this. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our fathers, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. So, if verse 4 is, God, you are faithful and awesome, verses 5 and 6 is what? We're unfaithful, and we're not awesome. I love how Daniel puts himself in the prayer, we. We have done this. Because when you read the book of Daniel, Daniel's an extraordinarily faithful man. Brave and courageous for the Lord. He seems like an unbending type of man of God. But yet he includes himself in these prayers. So there's an admission of guilt, specifically of intentional rebellion against God's law. Rebellion against God is a, God's law is a rejection of God himself. And so we think of it this way, is every time we look at God's word and openly do the opposite, we are actually in what? Open rebellion against God. Now, this is especially a a heinous act, considering that God actually chose a people for himself and reveals to them by special revelation, also in their heart, This is how I want you to live. This is what's pleasing to me. So God marks off people and says, you're my special people. I'm going to set my love on you. And here's how I want you to respond to my love. And they say, eh, we don't need God's word. 
They reject God. Verse 6 talks about rejecting God's warnings and sending prophets. God sent prophets to awaken his people from their slumber. And you can really see the mercy of God in, in the prophets. Because the prophets teach us something about the character of God, and that is he is very, very patient with us. There's times where God will just open the earth and swallow people. But for the most part, he sends prophets that say, hey, you better get your act together. And then when they don't, then he opens the earth and swallows them. But we see that mercy of God in this, but yet they rejected these warnings. You know, and, and in similar ways, when we think about our prayer life, Anytime we are confronted in our sin, there, so think about this, anytime we are confronted in our sin, there has been a prophetic call in our lives. And we, we ought to heed those warnings. And we ought to confess when we don't. We go to verse 7, the beginning of verse 7. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. What would you call that? Adoration. Specifically, of God's righteousness, God's justice. Look at the end of verse 7 here. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us. But to, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you, to us, O Lord, belong open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. So notice the contrast. To you, O God, is righteousness, but to us... And then he gets specific. He goes into the leadership and says, we have all, from the lowest of us to the highest of of us, have rebelled against you. So what belongs to you, God, is righteousness, and what belongs to us is treachery. Look at verse 9. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. How would you call it? What would you call that? Adoration. Adoration. Now look at how God's mercy and forgiveness is defined. It's actually defined in the confession. You are mercy, merciful and, for, and show forgiveness for we have rebelled against him and not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws which he set before us by his servant prophets. Now that's an amazing thing. You are merciful. You are forgiving because we're sinful. Quite an admission there and confession. It goes on in verse 11, All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. Now, Daniel's doing something that's very informing here is he's looking at his situation and he's looking to Scripture to interpret why they are in the position they're in. What book, specific book, do you think Daniel's going to? Maybe Exodus. 
So, and think about it this way, is the curse and oath, the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, Deuteronomy. He's probably thinking about Deuteronomy and the, the curses and the blessings that, that God specifically said, if you do these things, your enemies are going to take you over. And so he's actually looking at his situation. He's looking to the Word of God. The Word of God is informing him why he's in the position that he's in. And, and he's actually referencing in the prayer God's Word. He's summarizing it. He's not saying it word for word. Not at all. But, but he's, he's looking at God's Word interpreting the situation, and praying it back to God. You look at verse 12. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. What's he saying there? Yeah. Yeah, notice that. We have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God. It's almost as if they come under the curses, they have God's word, they know God's word, They don't look at God's Word to explain why they're in the situation they're in. And then they don't go to God to say, help us out of this. So it's almost like their their prayers were cut off. I think of that idea from Zechariah as the Spirit of grace is poured out on a people they pray. So it's a very serious situation. So he goes on to say, Therefore, verse 14, The Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. In other words, God is just in our punishment. We, d- we deserve this, in other words. Verse 15 is the turning point in this prayer. We've seen adoration and confession. So verse 15 begins with a turning point. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as it is, at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. So now he's thinking, now I think he, like he's reflecting on Exodus there. And he's thinking what God has done for us. And then verse 16, I'll, I'll read a portion of this and I, and I want you to tell me, what is this portion of the prayer? <clears throat> O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our, for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. So what would you, how would you classify this section of the prayer? Supplication, yeah. Request. It's asking... God for something. Does he stand from a point of, we deserve this? Uh Uh-uh. 
He's openly acknowledging their sinfulness as he goes to God in request. Verse 17, Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. There's a lot here. When you hear the listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy, you, you can almost hear the Psalms in that. It's not demanding God of anything. It is asking of God. But then, and for your own sake, what does that remind you of? Save us for your own sake. Think of Moses being out in the wilderness. Lord, did you bring us out in the wilderness for the other nations just to mock your great name? It almost sounds like a prayer of of Moses there. And then, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. What does that sound like? I'm thinking Numbers 6, the ironic blessing of, O Lord, let your face shine upon us. I don't know if Daniel was thinking that or not. But you definitely see these themes in his prayer elsewhere in Scripture. And so it would make sense to me that his prayer is actually formed from the words of Scripture itself. He says, oh my God, this is verse 18, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness but because of your great mercy. In other words, he's saying, we don't don't deserve a positive answer from you. We deserve your, your wrath. But because you are merciful, we know this about you, that we can ask for your mercy. The people of God, even guilty of great sin, can always go to a merciful God. And plead with him. That ought to encourage us because we know we're all sinners. We know we sin daily. But we have a merciful Lord that hears our prayers. In verse 19, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord. Pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by name. Daniel asks for forgiveness. Now, asking forgiveness puts him at the mercy of God. He asks the Lord to respond quickly here. And while it may seem like he's demanding something, it's qualified. He says, because your city and your people are called by your name. So he's concerned at the end of the day, in verse 19, this reveals his heart. He's ultimately concerned for God's glory. This is for your sake. So what drives his concern, his ultimate concern? Yes, it's his people, it's, it's the city of God. But what's driving it is God's glory. Now I want to I apply that. We went through that really quickly. And that was intentional so that maybe we could look at some application for us. The first thing is, is Daniel is thoroughly familiar with Scripture. And Scripture permeates his prayer. 
I think it, 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 it actually drives his desire to pray and guides the very words of his prayer. When you pray, do you consider Scripture as being the language of your prayer? Does Scripture guide our prayers? And just just reflect upon that when you're in your own prayer closet and you're reading Scripture. Does the Scripture drive you to prayer? And does the Scripture form it? Sinclair Ferguson says, This is significant for our understanding of prayer because the basis for all prayer is what God has promised to do. What do we read in the Scripture? We read of God's promises. That God is a faithful God. He's steadfast in His love. He's merciful. He's the covenant-keeping God. He is the faithful God. We trust that if He has promised us, that we can go to Him and He will deliver on His promises. And that's why Sinclair says this is the basis for all prayer. So, the basis of our prayers then should be the Scriptures that guide us in prayer. We're told to pray in the name of Jesus, and he will, he will answer our prayers, right? And as we looked at that last week, we know that that means that we're to pray for God's will. How do we pray for God's will? When you read Daniel's prayer, would you say he's guilty of not praying for God's will? Or would you say that he is thoroughly praying for God's will to be done? And he's just praying through Scripture. Another thing is this is Daniel continually extols God by mentioning his attributes and then by contrast confesses that we are not those things. Did you notice that? He gives an attribute of God and says, you are this, O Lord, we're not. You are faithful, we're rebellious. You are righteous, but we practice inequity. And so he considers God's attributes, and they actually form part of the prayer in considering his own sinfulness and his own need for God. So the attributes of God not only extol and praise God, but they also make us aware of our great need and make us aware of our shortcomings and and how we have fallen short. And so here's something for you to ponder, is as we look at Daniel's prayer, how does this help us to think of God's attributes in our own prayer life? And that's something for us to think about as we consider what prayer is. Next is this, as Daniel admits that they are guilty and they deserve the punishment they are receiving, even as he asks for mercy and forgiveness, Daniel's primary desire is what? Is it for him to be extolled? No. So think about it. When we go to the Lord and confess things and we're asking the Lord for things, do we have in mind God's glory even when we're asking for things? 
or ourselves. That helps form the motivations of our hearts. The other thing is that Daniel prays for God's people. He includes himself in that sinfulness. And so, we have an example. The whole prayer is littered with confession, that's corporate confession, but then, then praying on behalf of the people that God would act on their behalf. This drives us to think about our prayer life, is that should we pray for things that we need? Absolutely. But we should also be praying for one another. Because Daniel's praying for God's people. So there's a priority. We want to pray for God's people. Finally, Daniel has, has a, a great sense of God's sovereignty. Daniel was a tremendous theologian. He, he understood the attributes of God. He communed with God. And his understanding of God's sovereign timetable actually drove him to prayer, not to inaction. You know, sometimes people think that, well, if, if, you're, if you're a Calvinist, why do, you, why do you even pray? Listen, if you're not praying, you're not a Calvinist. <laughs> it's a trust in God's sovereignty that He is absolutely sovereign over all things that drives us to our knees to a God that is sovereign. Why would I pray to a God that's not sovereign? That wouldn't make any sense. We pray because God is sovereign. And we trust in Him. That His plan is perfect. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we again come to You to lift our voices up to You in, in humble adoration of who You are as our awesome God. We thank You that by Your Spirit You gave us this recorded sermon of your servant and how it teaches us so much about prayer, teaches us so much about you and the, and the Christian life and our need for your mercy in our lives. Father, we pray that you pour your spirit upon us, that we would be a people of prayer. We pray that, Father, we would reflect upon your goodness and who you are in our prayer, that your word would form our prayers and guide our prayers. Father, we do pray and ask that as we prepare for this coming Lord's Day, that you will prepare our hearts for worship as we gather with the saints to praise your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.